Okay. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures. Thank you that you, in your faithfulness, have been very happy to give us scriptures, Lord, because they just say the same thing every day, because you say the same thing every day. In that sense, you, you are immutable, you do not change. And Lord, for us, that is so precious. We thank you, Lord, that where we are so changeable and up and down very often, we thank you, Lord, that we know that what you have said, you are willing to put in print, because Lord, you do not change. And we just honour you. And love you for that. And we thank you that not only is your the scripture and your word unchanging, but it's alive. And we pray, Lord, your word would go to work in our hearts and our minds as we look at it today. Um, so that Jesus' fame would um, spread through our lives and also, Lord, for our good. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, like I said this morning, uh, with the last series, Tom kind of stitched me up a little bit, uh, whereby he... He, he was down in uh, two consecutive weeks to preach 1 Corinthians 15, one week, and then, uh, oh, I think it was two weeks. I think he had two weeks on 15 and one on 16, or some, some crazy amount he had on 15. But oh no, he needed another week on 15. And so left me with 1 Corinthians 16, which, although I want to assure you, I fully believe is the inerrant and inspired word of God, um, and, it's a, and there's lots of wonderful things in it. Uh, it's basically a collection of exhortations and greetings, and I just felt like, uh, to come back after, a, I don't know, two to three month uh, break and preach a, a belter on um, uh, a chapter full of various greetings and exhortations and instructions, I just I don't think this is where we're going. So uh, for those of you that really love finishing things, um, we'll, we'll, we'll pray for you at the end. We'll, we'll cuddle you at the end. Have some sweets. Um, I don't think we're going to. So um, what we're going to do is, is next, uh, I think, three weeks, God willing, is come up for air a bit and spend some time in the Old Testament narrative. We'll be looking at David and Goliath for three weeks. Um, particularly tonight, we're going to be looking at mountain moving, um, which is a very important uh, skill to learn as a Christian. Um, there's a lot of mountains that need moving. And um, in the sense that even for those of you that you might be here and you're not Christian, maybe you're here, you're not a believer, or maybe you're just kind of, you're, you're not sure quite where you're at. There are mountains that need moving in order for you to see the Lord clearly. For example... There are promises that God makes in Scripture, particularly just to everyone and anyone. He says things like that he loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son. So that whoever puts their trust in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. You need to believe that. And if you don't, the reason why is there's a mountain before you of unbelief that just says somehow... Somehow that can't be true, that someone who lived 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, you know, I mean, how can that have any relevance, any bearing on, on my situation in life today? That's a mountain that God, by his grace, if you allow him, will remove so you can see this Jesus Christ, the saviour of the world. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast away. And yet you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, you don't know what I've done. Your sin, your shame and your guilt is like a mountain before you. It needs moving. So that you can come to Jesus and find forgiveness and new life. And for those of us that are believers, there's many challenges and mountains that we face. 
many things we feel God has said. God has said that clearly in the Bible. It's there. And yet my experience seems way over there. It's like we, we've got to move this thing out of the way one way or another. Now, thankfully, Jesus told us in Mark 11. He says, whoever says to this mountain, out of the way and into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, it will be done for him. Now, we've got to learn how to respond responsibly and yet in total faith to statements like that. I think Jesus' teaching on faith and prayer are the most radical in Scripture we find in the Gospels, and it just leaves you thinking, in some ways, you know, you kind of want to get into the Greek and kind of hope you're saying something else. <laughs> oh, it turns out he doesn't mean that, you know, because it's kind of like, it's, like, it's mind-blowing. But he did mean it. And we've got to, we've got to, there's a way through by the Holy Spirit to, to, for our experience to line up with that and for those mountains to be moved. And that's what we're going for um, today particularly, but in the Christian life in general. This, this series on David and Goliath is, is, is about faith these three weeks. So um, let's, let's read, shall we? Um, uh, the book of 1 Samuel. If you've got a Bible with you, turn to the book of 1 Samuel, please. Chapter 17. Um, I'm going to read the story and then I'm going to give you some background just to help you understand and then we're going to go for it. But um, it's good to read scripture together. Um, Where is 1 Samuel? If you're not too familiar with the Bible or maybe, I don't know, for whatever reason, you've got stuck down a radiator for the last few months and you've only just found it on your way here or something, you know, and it's kind of a bit crumpled. Where is it again? All right, it's near the beginning. All right. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you get Joshua, Judges, then Ruth, then 1 Samuel. Is everyone there? All right. No. We said no. Seb. Typical. Right. Here we go. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle when they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. We're talking about nine and a half foot. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Aren't you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, who will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephraimite of Bethlehem in Judah called Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man, Jesse, was already old and advanced in years, and the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle was Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward, took his stand, morning and evening, and Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain, ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, bring some token from them. Now Saul 
And they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And so David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free from taxes in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now, Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not a better word? And he turned away from him towards another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Well, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. Saul's the king. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. He's been a man of war since he was a youth. David said to Saul, well, your servant, that's me, used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armour. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armour. And he tried in vain to go, for he hadn't tested them. And then David said to Saul, I can't go in these. I've not tested them. So David put them off, took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Are you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me! I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword not with spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand 
when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armour in his tent. What a story. Don't you love it? Yeah. I want to give you some background just so you understand a bit of history. Israel, God's people, God's chosen, special, elect people, and they've been rescued out of Egypt by amazing miracles through Moses. Uh, and, and then God had a plan for them, and God's plan was that they would be a theocracy. Now, you know what a theocracy is? It's a nation that lives really with God as their king. They don't have uh, a king, human, human king in that sense. They don't, it doesn't work like that. Actually, God is their king. That was the plan. And God would raise up either prophets or judges, and really they would just keep order and make sure that the, that the people were following God. But God was their king. And as, a, as such, they were marked out, unique. And, but what happened was the people of Israel didn't want it. They didn't want a theocracy. And so they said, they, they said, no, we want a king. We want to be like the other nations. And so God, is, we are told in the Bible, God says, in my wrath I gave you a king. He said, you've just gone on and on. So he gave them a king, and their first king was called Saul. Now Saul started off quite well. Um, he, he looked fairly impressive naturally. He was head and shoulders above everyone else physically. He was a man of great stature and imposing physical presence. And first of all, he did some great things, but then he made some real big blunders that exposed serious unbelief in his heart. He really didn't trust God. He was a man who really did all he could to try and make things work for him. And he, and he made two huge mistakes. And uh, after the second huge mistake, uh, the prophet Samuel, who'd really established him as the king, just said, it's all over. And he walks away. And at that point, Saul grabs him to try and pull him back to reason with him. And he rips his cloak accidentally. And, Saul, and Samuel just says, just as you've written, torn my cloak, God has torn the kingdom away from you. And then God speaks to the prophet Samuel and says, I've found a man after my own heart. Go and anoint him as king. And that's David. David gets anointed as king. Now, what happens then is that Saul remains king, but the anointing is on David. And really it takes years and years before David becomes king. But during this period, Saul remains king, but he's just a nightmare. He's become tormented by evil spirits. He's become murderous. He's become full of self-pity and paranoia. He's a disaster zone. And the anointing is just lifted off him. And he's really scrabbling around doing what he can to maintain some semblance of power. But God is really not in the picture at all. Uh, but what we see in David is, is, is really a picture of God's true anointed Leadership. Now, I want to give you that background just to help you understand the story and what's happening. But also, you need to understand this, that the church is called to be a theocracy. The church is called to be a God's chosen people whose leader is God himself. It's really important that we understand that. It's vital that we do. That actually we're not to put people in place, in that place in some way. The church over the years has done that a lot. The Catholics have done it their way. The Protestants their own way. The Catholics have chosen... Um, Popes and priests, and uh, uh, tragically, as we're, as we're realising lately, uh, you know, paedophiles at times. I mean, just horrendous. 
But they've given them this authority. The priest, you have the access to God. The Pope, you know, you, you've got the infallible teaching from God. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's not theocratic. That's a misunderstanding. But the Protestants have had their prophets and their pastors, who have often turned out to be pretenders. And they've had them who they've exhorted to their place of untouchable authority and uh, beyond the reach of correction and accountability. And it's always gone horribly wrong. Always those people demise at some point. They fall into sin or something because we're not created for that. Only God has the ultimate authority. Now, of course, we believe in leadership in the church, and eldership and government in the church, absolutely. But it's not a different tier in the church. Okay? The authority is genuinely bestowed by God and, and the, pe- the people voluntarily submit to it. Okay? But, the, it, but there's, it's, a, it's brotherhood. The pastors are as much a part of the church and brothers as anybody else, okay? That's because God is the head of the church. God is in charge. It's so important you understand that and that we relate properly that way and that we understand that as God says in Psalm 2, I have installed my king on my holy hill, Jesus. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the apostle of this church. He's the senior pastor of this church. He's our captain and our leader, all right? It's so important that you understand that. That will give us great health as we go on over the years, and it will make sure that we're thinking straight about things. So that's the bit of background there. And now I want to just look at this story and unpack it, because there's some, uh, there's some beautiful things in here. Three weeks on David and Goliath. How exciting is that? <laughs> Firstly, I want to ask you the question. That on face value, the Israelites' response to Goliath looks pretty reasonable, don't you think? I mean, a man's nine and a half foot tall. Just, let's just stop for a moment. Let's just going to get real about this. In my last church, we had a guy who was six foot eight. All right, six foot eight. Uh, when he used to give me Christian bear hugs, I felt like a toddler. <laughs> it, it was nice, but it wasn't. It was nice, but you're kind of like, when are you going to stop? Because I can't do anything. Six foot eight. There was another guy in the church who was about five foot ten, but wide. And I remember playing a game with him once, a physical, a physical game with him, and I, felt, again, I just felt like I've got no strength. I'm a child. And it's a horrible feeling, right? Now, just, just, let's just stop. For, Goliath's nine and a half foot tall. You know, you're going to face off with this guy. You're, you're talking to his belly button, at best. <laughs> at best. And some of you ladies, you know, I mean, it's kneecaps, you know? I mean, you know, I mean... What would you do? So I want to ask, was it, was it not actually quite reasonable what they're doing? Isn't their response actually quite reasonable? I want to say no, and here's why. Verse 1 of chapter 17. They were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. Where's Judah? It's the land of promise. It's the land that God had promised the Israelites. The Philistines had no right to be there. Now, before I go any further, I'm very aware of the news, the whole stuff with the West Bank, Palestine, and all of that. So I want to just say something. I'm not going to be drawn into an argument or discussion on that whole thing now for today. I'm not going to go there. I'm not willing to go there. It would take up 25 sermons, okay? It would not be helpful. So all I'm going to say is this. In this period of history, this land had most definitely been promised to the Israelites. In this period of history, the Philistines here were imposters. Okay? So I want to make that clear, just because I know it's in the news so much now, people could be thinking, I want to stop all your second guessing and say, we're not going there. I'm talking about this time here. Okay? So it's important that we realize that. 
The Philistines' presence in Judah, was it, they, they, they ought not to have been there. God has said to the Israelites, this land is yours. It's my gift to you. It's my inheritance for you. You are to clear out everybody else that is in this land. That was the deal. It was God's promise for them. Because of that, their response is utterly unreasonable. The Philistines' presence was defying the promises of God. I want to say this. Every promise that God makes is contested. There's always a battle to come into the promise of God. God says to the people of Israel, this is your land. They had to fight their way over every inch. It never just dropped into their lap. God said amazing things like, it's yours. I've given it to you. I've given it to you. Okay? And then what do we find? We find Joshua and his army marching through the night to go and square up to some guys. You think, I thought it was given. Yeah, it is. But you come into it. You, you walk into the experience of it through some fighting. There are, there are enemies to be faced and dealt with in order to come into the inheritance of God's promises. It's so important you understand that. If you don't, you'll be very confused as a Christian. You'll be mystified. In fact, you'll get really discouraged. You'll think, you know, it's all going wrong. Because God spoke that, and you know what? Something totally the opposite happened. Oh, God's great, isn't he? And you, you, you'll do all that crazy stuff. Listen, you need to understand that very often that is what happens. God promises something, and then a huge mountain goes donk right in the way of it. And it's like, okay, now where are we going to go? Well, we're not going to go around it. We ain't going to go over it. It's a song about that, isn't it? <laughs> we're going to get the thing out of the way. She's got no place being there. We're going to move the thing. You up for that? <laughs> You've got to have a bit of an appetite for a fight in you if you want to inherit the promises of God. The, very, the, the way that Christianity works, you want to th- if you, maybe you're here thinking, how does this Christian deal work? What's it like? Well, I'll tell you what it's not like. The deal isn't like this. God says do this and then we do it. It's not a law thing. It's not a law of relationship. It's a relationship where God makes promises, we believe his promises, and then we live our lives in light of what is promised. That's how it works. It's a faith life. It's where you believe God in the face of circumstances which very often speak something completely different. That's the Christian life. And if you don't understand that, you'll find yourself very confused and very discouraged. And what you won't do is pick up the weapons God has given you. You'll simply assume it's all gone wrong, and it hasn't. It hasn't gone wrong. It's just the way it works. There's a battle to be fought. So the situation is not, their response is not reasonable, it's unreasonable. David's got it right, they've got it wrong. Now let's look at the mountain for just a moment, shall we? Because the mountain is the sheer physicality of this man Goliath. That's the mountain. There he is, donk. Now it's interesting to me, there's something in here for us. I'll tell you why. Very often the mountains that we face, there's something very just natural, even physical, about them. There's something which is just, it's in fr- your natural senses are being assaulted by what's in front of you naturally. And as a result, you're struggling to hold on to the fact that God has said something opposite. In fact, in the Bible, what, something God does is very interesting. He sets against one another his power and his way of doing things against natural power and natural resources. Let me give you some examples here from Scripture. In Zechariah 4 verse 6, God says, he gives a promise he's going to do something amazing. And then he says, but not by might. And not by power, but by my spirit. 
Now what's happening there is that God has promised I'm going to do wonderful things and the temptation at that point, if you are a recipient of that promise, is to look at yourself, right? Or to look at your circumstances and say, man, God said he's going to do that, but look, you know. And so God says, or you look at yourself and say, I simply haven't got it in me. I'm not that type of person. And the self-pity kicks in and, you know, and all of that and your head goes down. God says, hold on, not by might, not by power, by my spirit. It's a different order. It's a different thing. It's utterly different. It's supernatural. Another one, one of my favorites, Psalm 147, verse 10, says, The Lord does not delight in the strength of the horse, nor in the legs of a man. Now, that's always really good news for me, because uh, uh, me and my sister have this running joke whereby our legs got accidentally swapped at birth. Uh, she's, got, she, she's got footballer's legs, I've got supermodel's legs. And... Uh, so we, we joke that if we could, we would just switch them, you know, and, but we, obviously we haven't. But anyway, um, there's this thing where I thought, you know, I'm really glad God does not delight in the legs of a man. He said, my legs aren't very manly, you know, and so it's a, a favourite for years, you know. But what does he say? What does he delight in? There's just this, this humility in those who fear him. And what he's saying is this, is that actually it's tempting if you're particularly good or strong at something to lean on that in a way that takes you away from God. It's not that it's wrong to be particularly gifted or resourced in an area at all, but the temptation of the natural human mind is to lean away from God in that and actually begin to lean onto that. And the Lord says, no, he doesn't delight in that. What he delights in is a heart that's fully confident in him. One other one, Proverbs 21, 31, says the horse and rider, they get ready in the day of battle. And it's impressive. You think, wow, you know, I mean, it's impressive. The horse and the rider, they're ready to go to war, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Oh, so you can get as ready as you like. Actually, the victory belongs to him. And there's this setting against of these things. And I believe it's deliberate because what the Lord wants to do is remove us from a place where actually what we're doing is just getting by on what we can do naturally. Because if that is what's happening, there'll come a point where you just come a cropper. It happens here with Saul. Bear in mind, Saul is head and shoulders physically above every man in Israel. But he's not nine and a half foot. So suddenly someone comes along who's nine and a half foot and Paul, Saul tries to meet fire with fire, but his fire is smaller. And so Saul is ominously quiet in this whole narrative. Have you noticed that? He's sat in his tent thinking. <laughs> he's, got nothing to, he's, got nothing to, he's got nothing to respond with. Why? Because he's moved away from confidence in the supernatural power of God. He's moved away from faith. What he's got is insufficient. The immensity of the merely natural is filling the horizon and it's defining the reality of God's people. They're being held to ransom because their view is filled with what is happening merely naturally. It's all wrong. It is all wrong. God has said something different. So the situation is not reasonable. The mountain is just the natural circumstance, physical thing, whatever. It's, it's there right in front. That's the nature of the mountain. Let's look at the people. This is tragic. These are God's people, but they've been reduced to the scale, the size of their leader. What does Goliath call them? Servants of Saul. What does David call them? Armies of the living God. It's interesting, isn't it? These people, they have really just, they've, they've really just become really in the mould of the one who they've exalted as their king. They're just like Saul. They're just, what's he doing? He's trembling. We tremble too. The servants of Saul. We can't go beyond him. We've, he's our, we've, we've ha- put him up as our, that's what we're going for. David comes on the scene and it's utterly different. I mean, you notice when David enters into the scene, the whole atmosphere changes. It's suddenly like, oh, what do you mean? What, 
uncircumcised Philistine. <laughs> Don't let him hear that. No, it's right. we will let him hear that. I'm going to fight him. Oh, it's just, what, how come? Because I'm with God. Because I'm with God. Because God's with me. Because God is amazing. Uh, suddenly a guy's come on the scene who's impressed with God and the whole atmosphere changes. Someone comes on the scene who's actually spent some time meditating on the greatness of God and enjoying the wonder of who he is and the whole, the whole air changes. Everything's different all of a sudden. It's beautiful, it's powerful, we need to understand it for ourselves. David understands who they are, they're the armies of the living God. There's a titanic clash going on between what's seen naturally and what's been said by God. And that's always where the battle is. I want to ask you Christians, who are we? We're the army of the living God. Who are we? We're the people of God. We're the weak, foolish, limping, spirit-filled, God-intoxicated Jesus-focused people of God. And as a result, there are things that we can do that are way beyond anything natural. You've got to believe it. Not because it makes us feel better. That's just optimism. That's just hype. It's because God has said, and he cannot lie. He's truthful. We're those who learn to find strength in our weakness. Victory in what appears to be Surrounded defeat. That's who we are in him. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We're the fragrance of Christ. It's great to amen it. It's even better to meditate on it and live out of it. The difference with David is he understands the promises of God. He walks on and he says, I thought God promised us this land. What's the problem? Let's clear them out of the way. Do you know the promises of God? You need to. You need to understand the promises of God. It's not enough just to kind of know the kind of, I don't know how to put it, the, the moral element of being a Christian in terms of just becoming like Jesus in terms of character and godliness. That's vital. That is vital. But you need to know the promises of God as well in terms of, I've got some stuff for you. I've got some good works prepared in advance for you. I've got things. I've got inheritance for you. I've got good works for you to walk in, planned in advance. This is what I have for you. I've got a land for you. I mean, look at some of the promises for just a moment. The promises, you know, the promises that the kingdom of God, and what is the kingdom of God? It's the rule and reign of Jesus. And what does it look like? It looks like righteousness instead of injustice. It looks like peace instead of conflict. It looks like joy instead of sadness. It looks like power instead of ineffectiveness. It will start like a small stone, 12 pretty funny guys, and become like a mountain that fills the whole earth. It's the promise of God. And it's on course, it's gone from 12 to about one and a half billion, so we're doing all right. Let's just reflect on that, you know. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot to be done. We daren't be triumphalistic. But what God has promised is coming to pass. Jesus promised he will build his church. And so our priority is to make sure that this church looks like Jesus' church, because he'll build that. <laughs> Yeah, we start taking it to ourselves and just kind of making it our own little hobby horse and following our own little pursuits, then we're in trouble, okay? But he will build his church. So we keep before him. That's why we pray on a Sunday. Just keep before you, Lord. Lead us. Speak to us. We want to keep praying. Your will be done. It's vital that we do that. He's promised that he will provide for us in accordance with his riches in glory. He will give us what we need. We don't have to live anxious lives. What about prophetically? What has God promised us as a church? Prophetically, it's important that we know that too. The, the, the promises in Scripture are surefire, end of story. But God also promises things uh, 
prophetically. Now, we've got to be more careful with those things because obviously they're not written in Scripture. we just got to make sure that it really is God. And there's a, a few little things to make sure that, we, that they're on the right tracks. Number one, if anything about what you think you've heard from God contradicts Scripture, then I need to graciously and gently say you're in error. You've got it wrong. That's not the case. You haven't been hearing from God. You've got that bit wrong. You need to rethink that. Once it lines up with scripture, you can feel a sense of peace. And then I would say take it to some godly people that you respect. More than one, two or three, those who are willing to speak truthfully into your life. Those who are not just yes people. And say, I think this is what God is saying. What do you think? Do you feel this fits with who I am? And talk it through. Get godly advice, godly counsel. If you're still looking good after that, say, God, can you just confirm that, please? Because uh, I don't want to be a crazy person for the sake of it. But if you're saying something here, then I really want, I want to run with it with all my might. And God is well able and well willing to confirm it if it's coming from him. So I'll just give you some advice on that. But God has spoken to us, I believe, clearly, prophetically, as a church. And we want to run into those things. God has, God has, God has said, particularly, he wants to give us bridges into communities. So I think, all right, let's, 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 let's reach some communities then. We believe God's particularly put an estate on a heart called St Pancras Way down in the heart of Camden. And uh, so we started a Mums and Tots group there. That was the first step of faith. And, uh, but mo- really excitingly, this weekend, we've, we've moved. Uh, one of our sort of leadership couples in the church have moved right into the heart of the estate. And it's intentional, it's missional, it's strategic. It's them saying, we want to open up this estate for the kingdom of God. We want to love and serve these people. We want to be the fragrance of Christ here. Um, they're, starting, they're going to relaunch the Mums and Tots group on Tuesday. We're going to look to try and see if we can do some teaching English lessons. There's loads of people there with English as a second language. So we want to see that place opened up. It's a step of faith. We believe God has put that on our heart. We're starting CAP, Christians Against Poverty. We're going to start a CAP centre here, God willing, in the next few weeks. Why? Because we want a community of people that are really lost in the spiral of debt to be liberated from that and through that to understand the message of the good news. You see, we respond in faith to what God has said. And it's not that you, you don't kind of just wait for everything to be clear before you do it. No, no, God has spoken. Let's live out of the promise and remove the mountains on the way. Don't wait till the mountains are moved first. Well, maybe well, the mountains aren't polite. Mountains aren't moving for anything except faith, okay? So there's, this, there's a stepping out and there's the believing God first. It's vital that we do this. It takes courage. It's frightening. When we launched this, oh, it's so funny. When we launched this evening service, um, you know, I, we felt God say it. We tested it. We thought, oh, God, God is saying we should be doing this. But I mean, the church was really small. I mean, really small church then. And, you know, I, I thought, well, I need some wisdom on this. You know, so I, I, I looked up on the internet. Someone who's really good at having multiple services. And what does he say? Eight things you need to have in place first. We had one out of eight. I came away thinking, oh man, am I just being a maverick? You know, and you just think, God, oh, you know, I don't want to, I'm not trying to prove anything. I don't think this is ego. I, don't, you know, I think you're saying something. I'm just going just to go for it. And uh, you know, you're out of the boat and you're afraid. And you think, if this goes wrong, you know, egg on my face, you know, silly boy pastor. You know, look, he's only young. Yeah, he got it wrong. Yeah, you know, all that, you know, oh no. You think, no, I think God spoke. And he has. And even being here today, it's just, it's lovely because it? it's, it's the mountains have got out of the way to be here tonight. And I, we, that, that's the pattern. That's how we live. That's how we do it. Okay? So there's some of the promises. Let's finally look at the hero. Don't you love David's approach here? He runs at the man. You just think, I mean, what would you be thinking? Imagine you're one of Israel's soldiers for just a moment. All right, there you are. And you've got this, this kid, and, you know, word's got around. There's a, there's a kid rolled up, the old Eliab's brother. He's really giving it some, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> He's only in Saul's tent. What's he doing in there, you know? And uh, he's, he's walking down the valley. And they all watch and think, what's he doing? And then he starts running at the man. And you think, 
this is going to bounce off him. <laughs> it's just, you know, and you, some, some of you aren't looking because you think, oh, it's a, it seems so cringy, you know, it's so embarrassing, you know. Uh, other, other people are sort of writing letters to their wives saying, I'm now a slave of the Philistines because, <laughs> you know, you know, and all this, uh, others are others there to look and they see him running and then they see him sort of swinging his arm around and he launches it, but it's too far away, he kind of, something's in the air and then one of these lights looks at he says, is that, 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 the giant, he seems to be swaying a bit. Is it just me? It's like the heat waves or what? And everyone goes, he's moving, man. He's, he's, he's swaying. What's happened? And suddenly he just hits the floor. And at that point you think, it's goosebump moment, isn't it? It's goosebump moment and you don't know what to do. Next thing you know, this kid is lifting up this sword that's as tall as him and soaring off the giant's head. And he's holding it up. To all of, to, and suddenly what, what we see happens is, is there's this corporate shout that's raised where suddenly they realise, of course. Of course, we're the army of the living God. Yeah? Suddenly they get it. And the victory belongs to the Lord. And they charge. And they, and they, and they, and they, and they just charge, they charge the guys off the field. Now, David's victory is impressive. But Jesus' victory is much more so. Because Jesus took on some mountains that you don't even, I mean, you don't even want to, I mean, forget Everest. I mean, the mountains he took on are like, he took on the mountain of sin. Every sin that's ever been done. I mean, you know, he said, oh, okay, let's do it. And he ran at it. And he think, well, not with a sling and a stone, but with a cross. He said, I'm going to take all of that and all the curse and judgment and darkness and filth of that, I'm going to take into myself. I'm going to do that. I'll take it all in, you think. He does. He just, he's not mouth. He's there. And you see him. And it's horrible. And people couldn't even look, you know, horrible. And there he is. You think. And he does it. And he says, I'm going to take on death now. We go for death. Let's do death. And he dies to take on death. And, and, and then rises from the dead in victory. You think, man, he's, he's done death as well. You know. And then he goes to Satan. Right. I'm going to get you behind it all. You's behind it all. And, he, and, and Satan gets to bruise his heel, but he crashes his head. You know, crashes his head underfoot and says, and then he, but then what he does, you see, he does what David does. He turns to his people and says, come on. You see, David could have turned up and said, I'm the man. You guys, you've lost the plot. Watch me do it. Do what he did and say, yeah, now you know what's going on. He didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He said, let no one lose heart. He's caught in his heart that God is about a corporate thing. God is building something corporate. God isn't interested in one or two superheroes. God's building a church. Because we're in the community of people that yeah. get it. They get who their God is and they get who they are. So David says to Saul, don't let any of the guys lose heart. It's all right. It's all good. And he says, who is this man to defy the armies of the living God? He's called it in his heart. It's the church. He's called it. Jesus is the same, you know. He does all those incredible things. And then he looks at us, clowns really, that we are, and says, come on. Come on, my beloved. Come on, my people. Come on, my army. Let's go for it. And so I want to finish with a bit of application. How do you run at mountains? What you do is this. You argue against the doubt, the disappointment, and the unbelief with the surefire promises of God. You take those promises, you take them up, and you wield them against. You argue down the doubt. You argue down the unbelief. You, you have to, it's real. It takes effort. Okay, it's real spiritual fighting. You're using the promises. You're ransacking the scripture for the promise that will fit the occasion. Okay, and then you fight with it and you destroy every objection to what God has said. 
Now, you need to be responsible. You need to understand what the Bible is really saying. You, know, you've got to, you, you need to do this within community, accountably. Otherwise, you can just go off on really bizarre tangents. But ultimately, you've got to do it. <laughs> you must not let that stop you doing it, okay? You can go weird, but let's, you know, let's risk going weird every now and then and actually do the thing. Then just be really sound. We don't ever do anything. We're really sound. You know, let's, let's go for it, okay? Let's run at some mountains. Let's not hole up somewhere and just wait for Jesus to come back, okay? Because then it's all going to be all right. No, let's chase out some Philistines. Let's chase out some imposters. Let's go against some mountains. Let's speak to the mountains. You know, Jesus says, speak to the mountains. Sometimes we spend so much time speaking to God about the size of the mountain. No, speak to the mountain about the size of God, okay? Tell the mountain the truth. Declare. Use your authority that is yours in him. Press forward. We run, we fight, we pray, we believe, then we pray some more, we trip up every now and then, we get up and we go again, and we win. That is what we are called to. It's messy. Um, we don't know the whole picture. Sometimes things happen, you just think, I don't know that one. That one's, I'm just going to have to leave that one there in a big old bubble with a question mark in it, but I'm still going forward. I'm not going to stumble because that happened. Okay? I'm not going to just trip up over that. That sits there. You know, the secret things belong to God. But I know what he's revealed. I know what he said. I'm going to go for it. Because this is our inheritance in Jesus. This is our inheritance. And I want to stir faith in you through this message tonight. It takes time to grow in this faith. It's not believism, optimism, hype, wishful thinking. It's that you immerse yourself in the promises of God and you allow what he says to become the reality. It takes time, but what the heck, you know? We've got all the time in the world, right? Because we've kind of given our life to him and we're all about him now, aren't we? So there's no problem. Yeah, unless, of course, you're distracted with lots of other pursuits that are keeping you away from that. Some things may need to go. So you can really get your mind renewed and really begin to press into a reality that is defined by what God has said and not simply by everything that's getting thrown at you. It's very, very important. We're not to worry that we're missing out on something else. This is the best thing, to live a life with a, a belt full of trophies. A few scars, a few scars and things, but a belt full of trophies is very, very exciting. I want to finish by just calling to those of you that have never put your faith in Jesus and say, trust in him. Trust in him. The gift of faith that the Lord brings is so incredible. It's so incredible. I want to urge you to see this Jesus that he lived and died and rose again for you. And maybe you're here tonight and you think, you know what, I want, to, I want this mountain of unbelief and doubt to move out of my life. We would love to pray for you in just a moment. So you can say, Jesus, I, I want to follow you. I want you to show me yourself because I want to follow you. We'd love to pray for you. I also want to pray for believers who there's just there's a mountain right bang there. And you know it's laughing at you like a Goliath, taunting you, defying everything that God has spoken. And you think, I want to go through that mountain and then I want to declare war on it tonight. I want us to pray for you. And we're going to do that in just a moment. And I want to just help you understand why we're going to do that. Because when the Bible talks about church, there's a lot of one another one another, one another. So it's great to have the teaching, but there comes a moment where we one another. Okay? So I want those of you who want, you know there's some mountains there, you want them out because you really want to flourish in faith. You're going to say, yeah, that's me. And then some of us are going to get around you and one another you. We're going to stand with you and pray the prayer of faith with you. Okay?